Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is the mind of Christ. And to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we're going to discuss why Concord matters for the neighbor. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point and St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And my companion confessor in conversation about this matter today is Pastor David Wiest. He is pastor at Concordia Lutheran Church in Evansville, Indiana. Pastor Wiest, welcome back to Concord Matters. Thanks for having me. It's good to be with you, Sean. Yes, it is absolutely always a pleasure to have you on Concord Matters, and I'm looking forward to discussing this topic with you today. But before we set up the episode here in a second and have you explain what we're talking about when we say Concord Matters for the Neighbor, first I want to share a listener comment, and I probably don't do this enough on the show. I really should. It is really and truly a great honor, and I'm thankful to have anyone listen to this show and study the Lutheran Confession of the Faith with us. And especially for those who take the time to also write in, thank you. Your questions and comments, whether positive or negative, are appreciated and helpful for reflection and evaluation of what we're doing with this show. So this listener comment comes from Michelle, who writes, The segment with Pastor Mark Bestel on Concord Matters February 16th, Concord Matters for the Baptismal Life, was excellent. More of this. Well, thank you, Michelle, for listening and for writing in, and I'm glad you appreciated the show last week with Pastor Mark Bestel, and we will certainly be working to line up some more episodes like that one, where we will look to provide what are basically some catechetical lessons, and so I'm glad to hear some response to desiring some more episodes like that. Along those lines, I also want to take this opportunity to share a bit about what we've been doing with the format of the show and also extend an invitation to our listeners. So, For the last several months now, we've been using a different format than this show had for about six years since its inception. Originally, the show read through the Book of Concord and provided an audio commentary as we went, and in the course of about six years or so, we finished going through the Book of Concord. Now, we are not looking to abandon that, and it is the plan to still do some of that and have some episodes where we work through the text of the Book of Concord itself. But since we finished going through the Book of Concord for the last several months now, We've been taking a more thematic approach to the Book of Concord and address some confessional topics. So we've looked at why Concord matters for the cure of souls, and why Concord matters for worship, and why Concord matters for Lutheran education, and why Concord matters for liturgical art and the worship space, and lots of other great topics of discussion for how they relate to our Lutheran confession of the faith and the Book of Concord. So going forward, we plan to do a mix of reading and discussing the text of the Book of Concord and also addressing confessional topics in a thematic approach to the Book of Concord, but also with mixing in some episodes where we look at some of the history of the Book of Concord and of confessionalism in Concord throughout Lutheran history, and also doing some more episodes like what Pastor Mark Bestel did last week, where since the Catechism is, of course, a part of the Book of Concord and we 
love talking about the catechism and going through it, will basically give a catechism lesson. So all of that to say, thank you, Michelle, for sharing that response. That is helpful as we continue to plan and line out what we want to do with this show and consider future episodes and our approach to teaching and promoting the Lutheran confession of the faith. So then I also want to extend an invitation to our listeners that if there are any particular matters within our Christian faith and life that you would like considered from the perspective of the Lutheran confessions, any confessional topics or themes or history that you would like to learn more about or have questions about, please feel free to share that with us and we'll be pleased to give it consideration and look to cover and address those in future episodes of this show. So you can do that by emailing us at kfeo at kfeo.org or you can go to kfeo.org and find all sorts of other ways to connect and share with us there. But honestly and truly, we'd be happy to hear from you and receive your feedback, ideas, questions, and comments, or even just who you are and where you're listening from. That's always a joy, too, to kind of learn who some of our listeners are. I know I've received contacts from literally all over the world. And again, it is just a real honor to have you listen to the show, and I thank you. Now, getting back to the topic that we're addressing here today, Concord Matters for the Neighbor. So, Pastor Weiss, that may seem like a bit of an odd title or topic to address here. So I'm going to ask you that very Lutheran catechism question. What does that mean? What does it mean, Concord Matters for the Neighbor? I think this time the title means exactly what it says, and I, <laughs> I think it's really important for us to understand this. Concord Matters for Your Neighbor means exactly that. If you're asking yourself the question, what can I do for my neighbor, for that person sitting across from me at the table, or literally my next door neighbor, or my fellow church member, or whoever, what can I do for them? As crazy as it may sound, you can read the book of Concord. <laughs> I, I really, when we, we talked about what we were going to talk about, th that's what I had in mind. And I hope that today what we'll be able to do is bust a myth, unfortunately, that is too often perpetuated within our church. I have no idea outside of our church, but within our church. The idea that loving the Book of Concord somehow makes us not neighborly <laughs> towards other Christians especially. Um, sometimes you hear that sort of thing. The idea that us having a common public confession of faith and using it somehow isolates us from other people or, or makes us less friendly. The truth is you can stand with these old German Lutheran theologians and believe it or not, it will, or at least it can, actually make you more engaging in your relationship with your neighbor. I really do believe that. I also recognize, as strange as it is, it's kind of a controversial claim. A lot of times when we talk about mission, we feel like we have to set aside our Lutheran confessions. And today I hope that we can make a convincing case for the listener. And I think in our conversation, the two of us shouldn't have any trouble doing that at all. So that's the goal. I completely agree. And I guess a next place to go then, so you said that it can actually make us more engaging to our neighbor in a loving way. And so go ahead and take us a little further with that. How does the Book of Concord actually help a Lutheran or a Christian? And of course, when we use Lutheran, we're just being specific how does a Lutheran Christian do a better job of engaging his or her neighbor in a loving way with the Book of Concord? I think there are, well, <laughs> there are probably more. I have three definite ways that simply by us engaging with this particular book, we become better at engaging with our neighbor. And the first is this, it's, it's going to be awfully hard for us to engage with our neighbor in a loving way if we can't answer the question, who is my neighbor? 
And, and that, that may sound like an, an unnecessary question. It may sound obvious, but I think it's more difficult than we sometimes imagine, maybe especially in this day and age. We could look at that question, who is our neighbor? And our minds probably automatically go to the parable of the Good Samaritan, as it should. And I suppose we could say that the answer to that question is, well, everyone is my neighbor. And that's sort of true. It's whoever God puts on our path, whoever God puts directly in front of us. But these days, at least in my mind, it's more difficult than ever. It's easy to feel overwhelmed by the fact that each of us individually, in a sense, has gone worldwide through social media. We are everywhere, and everyone is, in a way, with us. So how do we know what to do? How do we prioritize? How do we decide who we should be giving our time to from one moment to the next? When at any moment, we may um, have people in front of us, we may have people on our phone and on our computer. Very challenging to try to figure out who we should be dealing with, how we should be dealing with them, and that sort of thing. The Book of Concord helps us with this. First of all, by giving us some structure, by helping us understand that there are basically four estates, four areas that we find ourselves in. The first of those is family. The second is community. The third is church. And and then we have kind of like the parable of the Good Samaritan shows us that unexpected person that God puts on our path that we always have to be ready for. And again, this may all sound obvious, but I don't think that it is. It's so helpful for us to understand that every relationship basically falls into one of these categories. So just pause there for a second. So you talk about these four estates, the family, the community, the church, and that unexpected person that God puts on your path. And we've talked about these four estates on the show before, but always worth delving a little deeper into. And I don't know that, at least as myself as host, if we've talked specifically about if there's a priority to these estates. And the reason I ask this question is because I think, as you said, we've kind of gone worldwide and social media and the internet and all that is just a part of our culture. And even secular research is looking at those sorts of issues and the impacts that it has on our daily life. But I think we feel this pressure in the church too, that a lot of times I think there's the temptation to think, well, to do missions, you know, I have to go travel overseas, whether it be for a short-term trip or a long-term missionary work, or we're always kind of looking out there. But I think when we talk biblically and when we talk confessionally, I think we could view our mission, maybe even I might say our primary mission, a little bit closer to home. I don't know. Do you want to talk about priority of these four estates and how that relates to us viewing our neighbor as well? Yeah, but based on what you just said, I honestly, I think the first, maybe to take a step back before we do that, if you want to, is I, I like what you were saying there about the always looking out there. And I think that's a great way to describe, you're right, that's always been a challenge for us whenever, for example, for me, if growing up, if I heard the pastor talking about missions, I probably thought about Africa or something like that, as opposed to my next door neighbor. So that's always been a challenge for us. But I, again, it, it's a challenge in a new way for us. In the last year, out there is through my computer. And so I think the first priority before we break up these four estates is to recognize the fact that we have these people that are right in front of us that we can actually see that are, again, with the example of the parable of the Good Samaritan, who's on the path that God has put on the path right in front of us. I think maybe that's the biggest caution right now, and that's not to speak against any of the stuff that's going on online or, or even through a radio or something like that. 
but we've got to be careful not to neglect the people that are right in front of us. I, I think that's the first priority. Then when it comes to these four estates, I don't know. I think I've been raised to think family first, but I tend to think that's not quite accurate. That probably, and this is just me supposing, so I'm curious what you think as well, but I tend to think that it varies, that there are times where one of these estates has to take a backseat to another. I don't know if I can consistently say it's always got to be this. I think rather than saying this one is more important than that one, it, the goal for us is to try to figure out how they relate to one another. In other words, how does the family relate to the church and the church to the family? How do they support one another? We've struggled with this, it's certainly in my lifetime in the church. We've had a hard time understanding how the family and the church relate to one another so that a lot of the things that happened For example, in the divine service, people felt like, oh, we can do that anywhere. We can do that in our homes. And on the other hand, all of these things that were given to the family, to the head of the household, have been passed off in many cases to the church to do. So I don't think it's an issue of which is more important, and I know that's not what you meant, but instead, how do these four estates relate to one another? Yeah, and maybe that is a better way to say it there, because kind of what I was going with is not so much what is more important as much as essentially how do you evaluate and identify your neighbor and what they need from you. So what I mean is you use the terminology, the unexpected person that God has placed on your path. That's actually kind of new to me. I usually have talked about the three estates, the family, the church, and the community, and then the overarching order of Christian love, which goes over and permeates those three estates. And yet I think maybe I do like your terminology and even find it a little clearer way of stating it and helps us understand what is meant by the overarching order of Christian love. So, you know, you are in the three estates at all times, but as you are going along and serving your vocations within those three estates, you come across, like in the parable of the Good Samaritan, hey, I didn't expect to have this person in my life, but lo and behold, they are here and I should serve them in Christian love. You are called to that as well. God has placed them on your path, as you say. And so you serve them as you come across them while serving the vocations of the other estates. And likewise, I think it is important to say that you serve in the vocations of family, church, and community at the same time as well. But I guess what I was meaning by my question about priority is more that I think a lot of times we often struggle with figuring out who my neighbor is and whom I need to serve. So, for instance, I use the example of mission work. Well, I think sometimes we see people that come to the conclusion that they need to suddenly go out to find some way to serve in mercy or mission work and, or serve in the church, and sometimes at the expense of the other people that God has already placed in their path and the vocations that he has given to them. But the person who serves in the church at the expense of his vocation to his family, I would say, doesn't quite have it right. But, you know, I've seen this. People who feel like they need to get involved with all these things at church and serve on all these committees and boards at church, and they have to do all these mission and mercy efforts or go on all these trips. And meanwhile, they aren't doing family devotions at home, and they aren't very involved in training and instructing their children. And, you know, basically their Christian home life suffers. You know, I think we can certainly say God has placed in your path your children, And guess what? He's given those children to no one else. So you need to be faithful there and make your focus there before you worry about the neighbors at church or overseas or whatever it may be. And so I would say, in that sense at least, that is a matter of priority. You know, where are you? Whom has God placed in your path where you are now? 
And who is your nearest neighbor that needs your service that God has not placed in the path of anyone else? And I would certainly say we see it the other way too. You know, sometimes people get so wrapped up in what they're doing in their family, maybe their children's sports or their work within the community, or their daily work consumes too much of their time or lots of other things that they can neglect or even kind of abandon the responsibilities in the other estates as well. But the reality is we are always and simultaneously in the various estates and called to serve our neighbors. You know, God is giving you a family, and in one sense that has a priority simply because those vocational responsibilities have not been given to anyone else. And yet your family connects to the church as you are a parishioner and various opportunities of service within the church, and the family and the church are also within the community as you are citizens and the work you do within society. And so I agree, it is important to talk about how these estates relate to one another. And yet I guess I'm also saying in bringing this up with that question that took us down this path, that I think part of the problem we have is that it gets a bit overwhelming for us. And so we struggle to identify who my neighbor is and what they need from me. So help us understand that a little bit more. How do these estates and how do they relate to one another help us understand and identify who my neighbor is and how we relate to them? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a pretty broad category to just talk about four estates and everything fits into those. Well, that means there's a lot that fits into each one of these. For example, with family, you have husband and wife, you have parents and children. Well, the way um, a parent relates to a child is different than how a husband relates to a wife and vice versa. And as far as that goes, how a, a father relates to a child is different than how a mother relates to her children and vice versa. So there's a lot packed into each one of these. And obviously, one of the best places to go to for the listener, we've been using this as a Bible class for the last, I didn't mean for it to go this long, but for the last month, just the verses in the explanation of the catechism for the table of duties. And it's been a really fun study because it provides us that opportunity to look at each one of these different vocations that fall into the category of these four estates. So, for example, within, like I said, within family, we have husband and wife, parents and children, and just seeing what the scriptures have to say to the husband and to the father and to the mother and the wife and to the children, to the young and to the older. And it always falls into one of two categories. Either you're put in a position of some authority where you're called to sacrifice, to serve, or you're in a position where you're under that authority and you honor and you listen and those sorts of things. And we're all in both of those positions where we're called to honor and to listen and when we're we're also given a certain amount of authority in different areas to be able to serve, to be able to sacrifice for the sake of our neighbor. Again, I, I there's a lot that we can talk about, but I mainly just want to commend to the listener a good place to start is just with the small catechism in the table of duties, which you've talked about on this show many times before, but it provides wonderful structure that will help with the sort of stuff that you're asking about here that'll help the listener to better understand the roles that they've been given, the estates that they're in, and how they are called to relate to the people around them. It's just a, it's a wonderful tool, and it's a very simple one to understand. And just, we're definitely going to be able to do a better job if, like I originally said, if we know who our neighbor is. And this helps us to identify who our neighbors are and where we are going to meet them. It also helps us because it gives us principles. It gives us some form to work with. Now, the great thing about principles is they serve us in a fairly general way. So, I mean, you and I are both fathers, and the scriptures provide us with the same principles to use as fathers. 
You and I are by no means the same people, and our children are by no means the same either. So we have this wonderful form and structure that helps us prioritize, that helps us learn how to relate to the people around us. But after that, we have this enormous amount of freedom because God has created you to have a very unique situation. It's one of the reasons why, and I, I, this is a digression, so I don't even know if you want to do this, but I, this is one of the reasons why I think the longer I'm in ministry, the less attracted I am to programs, because they really stifle creativity and individuality. I, I like having these principles. I like knowing here are the four estates. Here are these vocations, and here are the basic principles for being a husband and being a father and being a pastor in my situation. Now go get it. You know, well, I still have a lot of questions. Use the gifts God's given you and go do it. You know, I love there. there is a place for this freedom after we've been given clear instruction and clear structure. And I love that about what the scriptures provide. And I love the way the small catechism so clearly provides it in the table of duties. So those were two things because the kind of controversial claim I made is that, that reading the book of Concord can actually help you relate to your neighbor. Well, here is a specific place that you can go just in your small catechism that can help you identify your neighbor, help you develop some, or not develop, you don't have to develop them, they already exist, clear principles on relating to specific people with, within those estates. The third thing I would say is that we cannot engage our neighbor in the way that we have been shown by God without a faith that grabs hold of the good news that God has loved us in this way that he has shown us through his son, Jesus Christ. In other words, the gospel is the foundation for all of this, because as much as I like having structure, um, I like having a to-do list and all of that sort of stuff, we see a lot of that sort of thing, maybe not as good as what we have in the table of duties, but a lot of that sort of stuff in the Christian bookstore, but it forgets the foundation of the gospel, and it just becomes overwhelming. And I get it. You start talking about all of the vocations that each of us have as individuals, and it does become very quickly overwhelming. Um, I see my failures as a father. I see my failures as a husband. And, and oh my goodness, this year as a pastor, I don't even know how to evaluate half of what I'm doing, it would seem. And it becomes overwhelming very quickly. So it all starts with the gospel and understanding that I, I have this wonderful Christian freedom, this wonderful opportunity to share what I've been given, to be neighborly in the same way that God the Father has loved me through his son, Jesus Christ. So I guess you could say the gospel then relates us to one another. That's what knits us together. Our, our community is, as we talk so often and freely as Lutherans, right? You know, our community, our communion is that which comes around the altar, right? You know, the Christ's body and blood given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins, right? Yeah, actually, as I was preparing and thinking um, about the different parts of the small catechism, especially like you did last week, look, focus on those first three. Obviously, we're talking about our neighbor. I had I was thinking about the law and, you know, the truth is, in a way, the law doesn't do the same thing, but it does force us into community, right? It doesn't leave any room for us to think about ourselves only. Every part of our life is described in the law in relationship to God and to our neighbor, really in the form of expectations. And that's very overwhelming. And that's what a lot of the, the sort of self-help books, that's as far as, as they go with it. But we don't just have the Ten Commandments we have the gospel, we have the Apostles' Creed, right? <laughs> and yeah, that foundation is extraordinarily important because while the law may force us into a relationship and say, hey, you don't have the option of being independent apart from God or apart from your neighbor, so get with it. The Apostles' Creed, the gospel, hearing what God has done for us, 
it frees us to love our neighbor because it shows us that we are forgiven, that we are loved, that we have a God that provides for us just because he's God, because he's full of grace and mercy. Well, let me know if this is fair or not, but as you were talking there too, I think we can even talk about it as, you know, we use the term gospel in the broad sense and in the narrow sense, and in the broad sense, it includes law and gospel. And so, yeah, we are all knit together in the fact that the law should guide how we live, and yet we are all miserable failures at it. And so then we're drawn in by the gospel in the narrow sense that Christ is our Savior, uh, Redeemer, and sets us on the sanctified path. But I think you brought up earlier, you said you made the controversial claim that reading the Book of Concord helps us serve our neighbor. I don't know that that's the most controversial claim you made. I think not liking programs (laughs) might be the, (laughs) the more controversial claim. But I don't know that that is a digression, and I think it does relate into this because in this sense, it does stifle us and since limits the law. And I agree with you, you know, a lot of the, for lack of better terminology, that self-help direction to living the Christian life, it is very legalistic, only based in the law and not much flowing forth from the gospel. And it really does stifle us serving our neighbors. You know, we form all these programs because that's what's going to grow our church, or that's what's going to help us live in community well together. And then everything gets focused in around these certain programs, and all of our energy ends up there. And well, maybe that's just not even the best use of the energy, time, and gifts and abilities of everyone within the community that God has placed into the community of that congregation. And it's been maybe a realization process for me over the last 10 years of being a pastor now, that, you know, a lot of times the best used Christian gifts that serve, I may never even see, or maybe best not confined to a program at church that you have to keep going perpetually, but it's parents caring for their children in the home. It's someone realizing, hey, I really like making cards and just sending out cards to those who are struggling with cancer and whatever it may be, you know, that we don't have to develop a whole program around this. That we can just give folks, I like what you said there, the principles, the scriptural principles, which I agree the table of duties is just a great, excellent starting place for looking at that, that guides us in how we live our Christian life and use the gifts and abilities. And you live in these four states and where you find yourself and have time and opportunity and so forth. Joyfully serve. We have a lot of Christian freedom in that. Yeah. I, my wife, I'll give you an example. I got a phone call. I missed it. And I had a message from a member and she's probably going to be listening, but I had a message from a member who's not been in great health and has kind of become a shut-in during COVID and uh, haven't been able to see her a whole lot. And my wife and daughter made Valentines for all the members and sent them out. And of course, I got the phone call, I got the voicemail, and I got all kinds of thanks and praise for that. And I didn't even know my wife had done it. <laughs> yeah. And it, it, it kind of... I honestly blushed a little bit at it because it meant so much to the person in the message. And my wife, you know, it was just kind of a thing to do. It didn't seem like a big deal, but, you know, a lot of people feel forgotten right now. And she didn't, not on the day she got that. It was a big deal. Um, You think of all the energy that goes into planning a program and creating that program so it's something that you can present and then presenting it and trying to convince a whole congregation full of people and you know then budgeting it and then dealing with all the budget headaches when you don't quite have enough money in order for what kind of I mean I hate to put it in these sort of terms but for what kind of rate of return 
it does make you wonder sometime. Again, having said that, I another quick story. I have a, a member, young member, who's a young adult. And every time I start having this conversation, he reminds me to back off just a little bit. I don't want to take it too far. We were talking about these four estates and within the four estates, all of these vocations. And he's in a situation where there was a lot of breakdown in his family, where People were not living up to their vocational response, God-given responsibilities. And he was at a church, a large congregation growing up, somewhere else, not here, that had a lot of programs, and they were extremely important for him. So here at Concordia, when we talk about programming, we, we also talk about for what I call vocational gaps, you know, because a lot of families have those where there should be a dad, but dad died, you know, at an early age and left a young widow and child. There's a vocational gap there, and, and, and the church needs to be there for those moments. And I would suggest that would be a good place, potentially, for a program. So I'm not saying they're bad any more than a church building is bad, but they can be as much a curse as a blessing, to be sure. They should serve. They should not supplant the four estates or any particular vocation. They should be supplemental to those things. Right. Well, and we can even just certainly say that programs are themselves a matter of that Christian freedom. And once again, if someone has a real gift for organizing programs and so forth, well, by all means, use that to the glory of God and do it till your heart's content. But let's not make, you know, as our hearts are constantly idle factories, right? We constantly build up these things that we have to continue on and everything because, hey, we've got this and it worked for us in the past or whatever it may be. I think that's more the temptation that we see it plague us in the church is that we kind of build it up to be more than it really is. And so, yeah, programs can absolutely serve the church and where there are those gifts, but you don't need programs in order to be church. The program is the program that Christ has given to us in the gospel, which you laid out so well for us. We're going to have to take a break here, but on the other side of the break, I want to bring up what you brought out as your controversial claim, which is that, you know, reading the Book of Concord helps us serve our neighbor and engage our neighbor. I want to dig into that a little bit more on the other side of this break as we dig into some things from the Book of Concord and see how that influences and forms and shapes our engagement of the neighbor that we can love and serve them. So you're listening to Concord Matters on KFO. Join us right after this. The USA is the third largest mission field in the world, and church planning is one of the most effective means of making new disciples, new missions to new people in new places. Get ready to plow the fields. Check out the Mission Field USA podcast produced by the LCMS Office of National Mission. You can find it at kfuo.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Concord Matters as we continue talking with Pastor David Wiest about Concord Matters for the Neighbor. And Pastor Wiest, in setting up and explaining what it is you mean by that, you made the claim that reading the Book of Concord helps us relate to our neighbor. And in the first half of the show, you laid the foundation of how we identify and relate to our neighbor by understanding the four estates and using the table of duties. And then we even went down a little bit of a digression, but I think a connected issue of how we relate to and serve our neighbor in terms of even just the things we do and how we organize ourselves as a church. But getting back to that claim that the Book of Concord helps us relate to our neighbor, I want you to go ahead, 
Give us some examples of how reading the Book of Concord and knowing our confession helps us relate to and love and serve our neighbor. Well, let's just use the small catechism as an example. We can pick up right where you guys left off last week. We'll look at start with the Ten Commandments. If we're going to talk about understanding how I relate to my neighbor, then look at the Fourth Commandment, for example, a commandment that's about authority. And what's neat is authority there is explained in a way that we don't think about it. I mean, right away, what we see here is in conflict to what we kind of naturally want to believe and and what we're encouraged to believe most of the time by our culture. What we hear in the fourth commandment is authority is a gift. And the fourth commandment teaches us how to value the people that hold offices of authority over us. And where else are we going to get that? Where else do we hear that sort of talk? Again, it may not be what we want to hear. But this is how we relate to one another. Authority is a reality in this world, and it's a God-given reality. It's actually a gift. The fourth commandment is the first commandment about our relationship with our neighbor, and it's the only commandment with a promise that is attached to it. But it talks about our relationship with those to whom God has given authority over us. So just with that one commandment, we are given something that I don't think I'm overstating to say you're not going to find anywhere else except in the scriptures or something like the Book of Concord that clearly gives a clear witness to the scriptures. But it's crucial because there's no way anybody gets through this world without having to deal with the issue of authority. Here's how we do it. In the same way, each one of us has been given authority at times and in places, at the very least in such a way that we've been given certain gifts, and we have the opportunity to use those gifts. How do we use them? Most of the time, people are looking for authority so that they can gain independence from people, maybe even from God. But that's not what the commandments direct us to do at all. Instead, people who have been given authority, it's explained to them through all the rest of the commandments that their lot as people who have stuff is to serve and even to sacrifice for the sake of the neighbor. The bulk of the commandments deal with how we will use the power that has been given to us, or the authority that's been given to us, or the stuff that's been given to us. Valuing and protecting life and marriage and the reputation, the property of our neighbor. These are the things that we focus on. This is how we love our neighbor. This is how we relate to them. Where else are you going to get this? Except in the scriptures, except in our Lutheran confessions. Where else is this going to be understood? Everybody wants to have relationships. Even the the hardest case of an introvert, still, they don't want really to be alone. They want to have relationships. Here's how they work, and here's what they're for. And even just that, relationships aren't an accident, right? God has created us to be in relationship with people. And that may be, I think, for all of us at some point in our lives, that's just, that's overwhelming. It's like we work really hard to get those relationships, and then we're completely overwhelmed by them. Well, the Ten Commandments, they show us how to love. They show us how to use authority. They show us how to honor authority and to look at authority as a gift in a way that we're not going to get anywhere else. The law leaves no room for us to think only of ourselves. Every part of our life is described in relationship to God or to our neighbor. We're not alone. We're in relationships. Whether we wanted to be or not, we're in relationships. And the law, the Ten Commandments, show us how to relate. So invaluable tool there. Yeah, and I would say that that relates into what you were talking about with those four estates then as well, right? 
you said even the introvert, which you would know more about than I would, <laughs> but uh, uh, even the introvert wants to have relationship. And that's true. I mean, that's a human desire. But I like what you also say is that really you have relationships. I mean, God places you in relationships. You find yourself within the relationship of the family, within the relationship of the church, within the relationship of the community, and even in relationship with the unexpected person that just kind of shows up as you're going about your vocations in those other three estates. And so I think this is an important point that scripture and our Lutheran confession of that, you know, as as we kind of organize it together, that's the fancy term is systematic theology. And what that means is it brings it into a system that we can kind of understand how all this fits together and relates together. It's, a, it's essentially what we're doing is systematic theology, right? And so it gives us a system to understand this relationship that we have been placed in so that it can be a joyful relationship that we can live in love and service to our neighbor. You know, it's a strange thing. Sin has us pretty messed up because we've all had the experience and it's because of sins, because of our sin and because of the sin of people that we're in relationship with or were in relationships with. We have almost come to believe that I, in fact, you see this with the dropping, for example, the statistics that suggest the number of young people getting married is dropping. We're sort of getting this idea that we can't afford to be in a relationship because relationships fail. Well, there's some truth to that. We fail in our relationships, but that doesn't mean the relationship has to fail. In fact, we can't afford for the relationship to fail because we can't afford to be without relationships. I mean, that, that's impossible. Independence is a myth. You can't be by yourself we depend on other people. And so we're torn here because we can't be without relationships, but because of our sin and the sin of people around us, we kind of feel like we can't afford to be in relationship. So Ten Commandments provide us with some great tools, with a great understanding of, for example, how to honor people in authority. But then I have to deal with the reality that person in authority doesn't understand any of this, and they're lording their authority over me. They're walking all over me, right? I just want to pull out of the relationship altogether. And that's what we tend to do. We, it's like we hop from one relationship to another, hoping that eventually we'll find someone who isn't a sinner. <laughs> and we don't have much luck with that. So what's the solution? Well, I, I think we move beyond, not beyond, but we continue our journey, if you will, from the Ten Commandments to the Apostles' Creed. We just keep looking at what you've been looking at the last couple of weeks. And the Apostles' Creed, we find that God works on our behalf. Again, these relationships are an accident. It's not an accident that God created us to be dependent and that we're not independent. It's God himself that draws us into these relationships and he, we can get even more specific when we look at the Apostles' Creed, especially, I'm jumping ahead, but the third article of the Creed, we see how God draws us into relationships within the body of Christ, within the church. And so I think it's a little bit, it's all a little bit intimidating to think about when even I just look at one relationship, just, I, I almost said my wife and I, but I'm not going to go on air and say my wife and I. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll have to come up with just imagine whoever, whoever's listening, you, you can picture your own relationship, but just one relationship that matters to you. Imagine there are no other relationships. Let's just say you and your father in heaven. It's still intimidating, isn't it? Because I'm a sinner and I don't deserve my relationship with my father in heaven. What I deserve is to be cut off. Or I can look at a relationship with a, a brother pastor or 
my biological brothers or something like that. And I, it, it's not easy and it becomes very overwhelming very quickly. But the solution isn't just to continue to bounce around, um, hoping that we'll find somebody that we'll be perfect with and they'll be perfect with us. Instead, God has provided a perfect solution. He has given us Christ. He has given us a brother who is without sin. And not only is he without sin, but he's taken on our sin and he's given us forgiveness. He's reconciled us with our Father in heaven. He's made us a part of a kingdom and a part of a family. And he's continually gathering people into that family. And at the heart of that family is repentance and forgiveness. And so when we're talking about relationships and our relationship with our neighbor, at the heart and center of all of it is that. No big surprise, right? Repentance and forgiveness. Christ is at the heart and the center. And again, that may sound obvious to all the Christians that are listening out there, but this is why I make that claim that I hope by now people are saying, really, isn't that controversial? And that is actually reading your book of Concord, which is all about Christ, which is all about the forgiveness of sins, which is all about grace and mercy, will actually benefit you as you try to relate to your neighbor. Well, and I think even this is maybe taking a little too broad, but helps us understand why it's important to confess the faith, especially in the context of the 1600s, right? 1500s, 1600s, when these confessions were written, that, you know, a lot of times it's viewed as us just asserting ourselves against the Roman Catholics or against the Reformed and the heresies and errors and so forth. But actually, it helps us understand what we're doing is the Lutherans, especially Luther himself, found that relationship through the gospel that he has with Christ and thus with the Heavenly Father. And that is fulfilling enough. And so then it leads and guides us into wanting to live in relationship in the joy of it in a positive way with our neighbor. And so, yeah, we're going to confess the truth of God's word, not to make ourselves right and assert that we're right and they're wrong or anything of that nature, but it's actually we're serving our neighbor with this faithful confession out of the relationship that we have with Christ and through Christ to the Father. And I think couldn't even relate back when we see that relationship with Christ and through Christ to the Father, that relates back again to the Ten Commandments as well. You brought in the fourth commandment, and I like what you said there that I call it relationship escapism. We kind of run from one relationship to another, <laughs> trying to find that happy relationship. And, you know, we see that especially when it comes into marriage or even where folks don't call it marriage and so forth. You brought in the fourth commandment, but I'm going to bring in the sixth commandment. You know, we talk about the drop in marriage. Well, there's not a drop in marriage. They're just not calling it marriage. They're still uniting together. And so what, what have we done? By not having a faithful confession, we've made a mess of marriage. And it's not serving our community well. It's not serving our society well. It's not serving anybody well. It's not serving the family well. It's not serving individuals well. And so this is a way that we can serve our neighbor, is that we help them with this faithful confession of, hey, let me tell you how God, who created this wonderful gift and placed you in this relationship, how he leads and guides you and to live in the joy of this gift. Maybe you made some poor choices in who you've come into relationship with, but hey, that's who you have this relationship with now. God has given them to you. So how do you work for faithfulness in that? Be led by God's word, and that flows from our confession. This is how we live in the joy of the gift that is marriage, right? Flows from our confession. Is that kind of a faithful drawing together what you've been leading us here? I think it's good. <laughs> I, I agree with you. I no. I, I there's some great examples there. I, I what I like especially is 
you're pointing out the interconnectedness, and we've done that a couple of times, the interconnectedness of these relationships. I said, focus on just one person. Imagine there's just one person, but there's not. And this is what's, I mean, we tend to look at relationships, especially in a generation, in a time where everybody's trying to make a difference when everybody's concerned about the decline of this or the trouble here or the trouble there. They want to see things change. They want to make a difference. The temptation is always to look for the relationship where we have power and authority from a worldly point of view anyway, power and authority where, you know, here I can make a difference. If I get to know the right people, if I'm in the right position, we need to just forget all that, that, as my grandpa would say, all that hogwash. And we need to just see the interconnectedness of those relationships and therefore the value. So I may be concerned about what's going on in society around me. Well, my relationship to my wife has an impact on my relationship to my children who there are four of. And they, as they turn into young adults, will have an impact on the people in their lives. And all of a sudden, we're dealing with you know, an entire community of people. Same thing in the church, where we have this gathering of God's people in a congregational life together in the divine service. And then they go out. You know? So, I mean, there's this interconnectedness to the relationships. So we can kind of let God figure out how all the connections are made, because we don't really understand anyway. And we can really focus, again, like that parable of the Good Samaritan, we can really focus on that person who is directly in front of us. I think that maybe one of the reasons we hesitate to do that is, again, because we're scared of the reality of that moment. And again, that would make sense to be scared and maybe even to run from the opportunity if we had anything to be afraid of, but we don't. If God has put us into this situation, if this person is on my path, not by accident, but by design, and if I have an understanding, a right understanding of the scriptures and and my vocations and what I'm supposed to be doing, and in addition to that, I have an assurance that my sins are forgiven, that my relationship with God is based on what Christ has done, then again, there's this enormous freedom to try and to keep trying, not to try to create the perfect relationship. You know, I don't have the perfect marriage. I don't have the perfect family, but I have Christ and I have the opportunity to share Christ in my marriage and with my children and to the parishioners here at this congregation where God has called me. I'm not perfect and they're not perfect, but Christ is perfect and he's in our midst. He's here for us. He's here to give us his perfection. So it's like there is no escaping the relationships. And we don't have to because Christ has come into the midst of our relationships and he has given us something perfect to share himself. Yeah. So in a sense, you do have the perfect marriage, but it's Christ and his beautiful bride, the church of which you are a part of, right? And then you start to see all those other relationships as divine reflections almost, right? That's kind of what you're describing there of living out of the relationship that you have with Christ and through Christ to the Father as well. And yeah, it gives us understanding for living in the relationships, which then makes me think, even as I talk about that we're in relationship with Christ and with Christ to the Father, talk also then about the third article of the Creed and the relationship of the Holy Spirit and how it relates us to our neighbor and our relationship to our neighbor. If, I say if, but I, I know everybody has been through this at some level, Every single one of the people that are listening have been in a situation where they've had to deal with a broken relationship and the hurt that comes from a broken relationship. The third article of the creed provides consolation. 
it not just, oh, poor you, but it provides what we've been looking for and what we have been struggling with on our own. At the end of Luther's explanation of the third article of the Creed, after it's talked about what the Holy Spirit has done for me, it points out that he's not only done it for me, I'm reminded of the community to which I have been gathered by grace. Luther explains, and this is wonderful consolation, listen to this, in the same way he calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies the whole Christian church on earth and keeps it with Jesus Christ in the one true faith. In this Christian church, he daily and richly forgives all my sins and the sins of all believers. That's what we've been looking for. Community. That's what we have desired. And we've created all kinds of idols and and we've tried all of these things that have failed because we couldn't get around sin. But Christ, he didn't get around sin. He buried it in our baptisms and he brought us into his body and he's made us a part of this. He's adopted us into this, or we've been adopted into this kingdom of heaven, this family of God. And it's not just me. He calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies the whole church on earth. And he keeps it. He keeps it with Jesus Christ in the one true faith. And how does he keep it? It, Again, we get back to the forgiveness. Daily, richly, he forgives all my sins and the sins of all believers. Doesn't mean that we don't have problems in our congregation. We don't have disagreements and personality conflicts and all of that stuff. All of that stuff is still there. But it no longer, it's no longer the heart and center of our relationship. The brokenness isn't at the center. It can't break us because we've been brought together by the forgiveness of sins. And we're being kept in that forgiveness until the sanctification that's being done is complete. Until Christ returns and we get to finally do away with the stuff that divides us. And we get to see the body of Christ for what it even already is. Something wonderful and something perfect. See, here you go. The claim was that concord matters for your neighbor. Our neighbors are struggling in relationships too. What kind of amazing news is this that we have for them? And if this is the reality, then, I mean, we could, we could move on to the Lord's Prayer, right? At the heart and center of the Lord's Prayer is the same thing as we get here in the third article, repentance and forgiveness. It's not surprising that it, if it's at the heart and center of the Lord's Prayer, repentance and forgiveness then what we see in the fifth petition is not just that we pray that God would forgive us our trespasses, but we forgive those who trespass against us. There's the community again that we've been drawn into. Forgiveness is at the heart. It's at the center of all of this. And again, where else are you going to get this but from the Word of God and from those places like the Book of Concord that are clear witnesses and confessions expressing what the Word of God has to say about our relationships? This is what makes a relationship work. We can stop bouncing around from one relationship to another where you're talking about marriages or you're talking about friendships or you're talking about churches hopping from one church to another. No, reconciliation is the key. Christ is what has drawn us together. Christ is what keeps us together and the forgiveness that he gives to us. As you're talking there, it makes me think, what if we actually engaged conflict, whether it be in our family, in our congregation, in our community or whatever? By recognizing, hey, I I have been placed in this relationship by God himself, and he's given me all the tools I need. And sometimes I think this is the temptation for us, is that we look for the ultimate fulfillment that will come someday. We forget that, no, he's actually given us the tools now. And I like how you took us back there. He's given us confession and absolution. And that's not just something 
that is for you individually. It is, right? But it's also for you and your neighbor. This is how he continues to sanctify you in relationship to your neighbor, that we engage that conflict, that we engage that brokenness, that we still live in in this sin-broken world, this side of the return of Christ. The Holy Spirit dwells among us. And he's going to continue to dwell among us in community for eternity, we pray, with that Christian brother or sister, or for that person that we desire to be our Christian brother and sister, because I don't want anyone to go to hell. And so I'm going to engage them as seeing that the Holy Spirit has called us into this relationship and given us all the tools that we need. And he's going to work in us, even as he's working in me individually, he's going to work in the neighbor. And so we can engage it in this gospel-centered way then. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, This is... um... I don't know how to say it. It, it. It's not, in a way, it's still overwhelming because I still know that I'm a sinner, but, but this makes me want to try. There's an avenue now. There's a way. And again, it's less me trying to create something. I'm trying to create a relationship, you know, trying to create that perfect relationship. And it's more me identifying it, you know, especially with my brother or sister in Christ. It's just identifying, you know, we are together. We do have a relationship with one another. And yeah, I'm gone off the deep end on that. But, but I hear what you're saying, and I think it's a good point. It's a good distinction. I, I say we we let Luther have the final word between us on it, though, from the Solid Declaration Formula Concord. Faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace, so sure and certain that the believer would stake his life on it a thousand times. This knowledge of and confidence in God's grace makes men glad and bold and happy in dealing with God and all creatures. And this is the work that the Holy Spirit performs in faith. Because of it, without compulsion, a person is ready and glad to do good to everyone, to serve everyone, to suffer everything out of love and praise to God who has shown him this grace. Thus, it is impossible to separate works from faith, quite as impossible as to separate heat and light from fire. That's a great quote from Luther, quoted in the Sala Declaration, and draws together and makes the point that it seems I think I make on this show a lot, and that is these doctrines, they don't stand alone. I mean, we've gone from the four estates of Christian vocation to the Ten Commandments, to the Creed, to the Lord's Prayer, and to good works, and all of it we can see in our Lutheran confessions how we can love and serve our neighbor. And even as there are several other topics and themes of our Christian faith and life that are all in there and interconnected with our Lutheran confessions as well, That's good. That's how scripture is. It's a body of doctrine. It comes from our Lord and we confess it in the various ways and avenues as we live in faith towards God and love towards our neighbor, which even that brings in our liturgy and is another facet we could talk about as well. So maybe we've only scratched the surface of this topic here. That usually seems to be the case. But go ahead, Pastor Wieson, give us your parting thoughts for us today. Why does Concord matter for the neighbor? We use words like love and forgiveness and those sorts of words all the time. They're common. They're probably overused. But what our confessional writings do is they bear witness to something wholly uncommon. You could even say otherworldly when they talk about love and forgiveness. We have been handed the kingdom of heaven by the Son of God. We are given a relationship with the triune God that is like nothing we have ever experienced in this world. And then we are invited, holding firmly to the gospel, holding firmly to the fact that we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, to live with our neighbor, not like the world has taught us, even though they use the same words, but instead to live with our neighbor like the children of our Heavenly Father that we actually are. 
That is well confessed. Thank you, Pastor David Weiss. It's been a great pleasure, as always, having you join us for Concord Matters today and discussing with us why Concord matters for how we live as Christians in love towards our neighbor. And it flows forth, of course, from faith in Christ Jesus. Thank you so much. And thank you also, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church. <laughs>